0: This is Purple Radio on demand. Hi, I'm Ariel, and this is another episode of Pulling Back the Canvas, the podcast where I get overexcited about art and look at the stories from history or mythology that have inspired various pieces of artwork. I feel like I'm hanging out with people when I'm uh, ranting. Why am I ranting? talking about art. So I thought I'd just check in. See how you're doing. This is a bit of a one-sided relationship because I, I can't hear how you're doing. You know, how's it going? I hope you're going well. Um I'm currently back at home. I'm uh, my co-stars today are two cats. Um they have they have they haven't got a lot to say to contribute, but they they are moral support. Like last episode, I'm going to be talking about a painting from the Lang Gallery in Newcastle as a little spotlight because it's a local gallery and I love it lots. Plus, once COVID has blown over, it's a wonderful place for a day trip. Um, but until then, you can always use their online tour and um, pretend you're in a pre-COVID world and shed a tear. This week. We're going to go historical again, and slightly legendary, I guess, as we're looking at Edward I's Conquest of Wales through the painting The Bard by John Martin, painted in eighteen seventeen, and also a painting that's based off a poem called The Bard, a pindaric Ode by Thomas Grey, written in seventeen fifty seven. So we've got two parts of the painting to talk about the poem and the portrayal of it. Actually, there's three parts, isn't there? We've got the history and the story, too. Ooh, have got a lot of aspects to get through. I'll start with a bit of biography on Thomas Grey and John Martin. I'll start with Grey, though, because I suppose he wrote the original poem. So it's so, only so fair. Grey was writing in the 18th century, just a bit before the growth of the British Romantic movement. And he was apparently part of the Graveyard School of Poetry. And oh my god, that is such a sick name. The Graveyard School? That's amazing! They just sound like they're all lounging around on headstones. I don't know, drinking straight vodka and moaning about how awful life is. Wow. Uh, Yeah, they were all sad and moody and focusing on death. And basically the Goths before the Goths were a proper thing. If I try and delve into the depths of my brain to remember A-level English Lit, I think it's a bit of a reaction against um, the 17th century kind of libertine and explicit poetry with Charles II. Yes, the one that brought back partying. So now these guys are like, mm, moody feelings. But that's really not important to the painting. And kind of important, not really. Poor Grey was from a family of 12 children um, <laughs> and a mean, abusive father. And one biography described Grey as a delicate, studious boy. And, oh, uh, poor thing. Um, I can just imagine this tiny, tiny, skinny boy that discovers books and is like, okay, this is my thing. He made some friends like that at Eton, uh, because, of course, it's Eton. And apparently they all banded together as a classic case of... Uh, we like reading and hate sports group of boys like i imagine they would have been the musical theater kids of that school if musical theater was a thing uh his one of his friends uh included horace walpole who would later write the castle of entranto which was the first gothic novel so that's the vibe we're dealing with here so Grey goes to Cambridge and uh, delves into classics, linguistics, Celtic studies, all that jazz, and starts writing poetry too. Remember, got lots of melancholy, odes to things, he, he does an elegy in a churchyard at one point, like, oh, this is just, I, yeah, I didn't delve too far into his poetry, because it's just, yeah, I'm sure it's very good, <laughs> I just don't have the, uh, the, the, the brain span, uh, the emotional span for it. Eventually, he writes his Pindaric Odes, which includes the Bard, after he learned about Welsh history, which apparently no one really cared about at the time, and but people seemed to like the poem when it came out. They did obsess over its obscurity a whole bunch, and who was it? It was Samuel Johnson who did a review of it saying, and I'll just get it up now, he said, I do not see that the Bard promotes any truth, moral or political. And thought it was kind of ridiculous. So yeah, people were kind of like, what is this? I don't don't get it. Now, John Martin is our painter. Martin was born in Hayden Bridge, which is a town along the Tyne Valley, for anyone who isn't familiar with Northumberland. Martin is a local boy, basically, um, and he was a part of the Romantic movement. Uh, the Romantics were all about nature, emotion, love, but Martin was on the melodramatic side of all that. As I was writing the, I, like I was writing these notes while I was researching, and <laughs> I just have a note that says, "Holy moly, this guy is insane." Um, not as in like insane, like, but like he has so much going on. Uh, some examples of uh, the, just this guy. Oh my goodness. Right, so apparently the Brontes, yes, those Brontes, had a painting of his, uh, Belshazzar's Feast, in their house, which supposedly inspired their work, the architecture in his paintings, inspiring the worlds they made up, like the little um, worlds they wrote about, which is so cool. (laughs) Um, His work also inspired Victorian architecture and railways, and he also had ties with the Pre-Raphaelites. Yes, those ones again, they just keep cropping up like a bad rash. Um, for some reason, the fact he liked playing chess cropped up, which I only mention because I have been watching Queen's Gambit. Um, just so topical of me. I really am just the queen of pop culture. Um, <laughs> he was also very Christian, um, which can be seen in his works. Lots of biblical scenes and things like that. He was also mates with royalty. Uh, especially those on visits to the north of England. Even Tsar Nicholas, who visited End and described that the collieries there were like looking into the mouth of hell. So that's really fun. Thanks, Nicholas. He also became the historical painter for a guy who would become the first king of Belgium. Oh yeah, he also was mates with Charles Dickens. Victorian Britain, I'm gathering from this, it's just a really small world <laughs> regarding martin's art though um i mentioned the biblical scenes but think not just biblical in subject but biblical in scale if you have the time google this guy's paintings because they are so impressive the detail and the drama in them are breathtaking it, the melodrama is real um I'm just gonna get some pictures up so I can, uh, I can just make myself excited about this because they're just incredible. Yeah, they're just, the scale in them is amazing considering the actual size of the paintings, um, the detail and just the, did I say, they just come alive. Um. Even his engravings are impressive, like the use of light in them and things like that. <laughs> Speechless. Um. My favourites are Pandemonium, uh, the Great Day of His Wrath, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because, dude, they are dramatic. Now I'm done gushing about uh, Martin's art. I'll go on to the bard and the the painting and story that I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Uh, I'll start with the history behind the poem, because here we are on Snowden's shaggy side in the painting, wind whipping around us, bard perched and cursing the army that winds around the river, and in the words of the talking heads in their song Once in a Lifetime, I'm sure you're thinking, how did I get here? Not, this is not my wife, this is not my house. How did we get here? (laughs) Uh, Commence flashback transition shot. Edward the First, or as his friends called him Edward Longshanks <laughs> I can't quite get over that name Longshanks he was 6'2 because apparently that matters. um that's why he was called Longshanks had some long thighs <laughs> anyway Longshanks inherited the throne from Henry the in 1272 and decided right England deserves the whole of Britain and I'm going to take it go team Edward there had always been moves to incorporate Wales into English ownership through William the Conqueror, um, but he had a less head-on approach, he was doing bits of conquering at a time. However, Llewellyn the Great managed to unify the Welsh against the English, which was continued by his grandson, also called Llywelyn, and he was the new Prince of Wales, the antagonist to Mr Longshank's dream of taking Wales. So, by 1277, he had declared Llewellyn a rebel, and was marching into Wales. He had also captured Eleanor de Montfort, uh, Llewellyn's bride-to-be, as she uh, was his cousin, and he didn't like the thought of her marrying the Prince of Wales, his sworn enemy. Llewellyn Jr. really got on Edward's nerves. He hated the Celts anyway, but all this meant he was ready to take them out completely. There's a lot of tension in Wales between factions already, including between Llewellyn and his own brother, David, who tried to have Llewellyn assassinated. Hmm. Oh, just the warmth of brotherly love. David runs off to the English side in 1274 because he's a wuss? I, I don't know. I don't know the uh, the intention behind that. Um, just kind of like pressing for Llewellyn. I, I'm backing Llewellyn here. Honestly, A massive army was brought together and Edward started with the north of Wales. He wanted Llywelyn out and planned to give Gwynedd to the Prince of Wales brothers, David and Owain. Due to the two brothers siding with Edward, more Welsh nobles defected to the English side. Over half the army were Welshmen, I think it's about 9,000 out of the 15,000 which is crazy. The army marched to Connery, where our bard is yelling from a mountaintop, and they cut off the food supply to Llewellyn's forces. Llewellyn's hand was forced at this point, and the Treaty of Aberconwy was signed, limiting his influence and his land, and another clause was that he had to recognise Edward as king and sovereign. The two rivals met up in Worcester, Llewellyn discovering his fiance had been trapped there the whole time. With the agreement decided, Edward allowed the two to be married. Nice. That's 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 pleasant. However, Wales was now under English sovereignty through... Um, no one was happy, really. Another rebellion broke out in 1282 due to the hatred of English law and the stifling of Welsh identity. This war was led by David this time. Not happy with what he got out of the last one. Remember, David was the one that sided with Edward. And even though he was stabbed by David in the back last time, Llewellyn supported his brother in the war. Also, he lost his wife that same year. Poor bloke. I like Llewellyn, not a lie. The rebellion didn't end well, though, and Llewellyn was killed. And the efforts disintegrated completely when David was executed for treason after being captured in 1283. So that's the end of that particular period of um, rebellion. This led to further colonisation of Wales by the English, especially through castle building. The main castles we know today in Wales, uh, for example Aberystwyth, Harlech, Carnarvon, were built by Edward as a way to signal, I'm here and I'll be here all week, and and next week, and the next couple of centuries. Um, This message was further enforced by the fact that Welsh people weren't allowed to live in them. That's, yeah, uh, hmm <laughs> gonna put these castles on the, your land and uh, <laughs> you're not allowed in them. This is very like the method that William the Conqueror used in the 11th century. Durham Castle is a testament to that. It just shows permanency in rule and also you can stick people in those castles to keep an eye on the local population. It's after Edward's victory in 1277 though, that the legend surrounding the death of the Bards come in. The story goes that Edward had the Bards executed after they refused to sing for him or praise him at Montgomery Castle. The story also changes in that it was also said that the Bards were killed as they had the power to incite another rebellion. This power would be of music and national memory and also prophecy, all dangerous to Edward, so understandable why that was another string of the, of the story. But this is where both Grey and Martin pick up the story and the parts they choose to portray. This legendary figure of a bard, something that Grey could probably relate to as a poet and also understand the power of such a figure. The headnote of the poem is as follows. The following ode is founded on a tradition current in Wales, that Edward I, when he completed the conquest of that country, ordered all the bards that fell into his hands to be put to death. I realise that all my stories so far have resulted in death. I swear that's not a reflection of me, um, it's a reflection of artists, okay, <laughs> that they think that the most interesting thing to portray is death. I swear. Anyway, I'll read the first couple of stanzas and then I'll summarise the rest of the poem. Ruin sees thee, Ruthless King, Confusion on thy banners' weight, Though fanned by conquest's crimson wing, they mock the air with idle state. Helm nor Horbeck's twisted mail, nor even thy virtues, tyrant, shall avail to save thy secret soul from nightly fears, from Cambria's curse, from Cambria's tears. Such were the sounds that o'er the crested pride of the first Edward scattered wild dismay, as down the steep of Snowdon's shaggy side he wound with toilsome march his long array. Stout Gloucester stood aghast in speechless trance. To arms, cried Mortimer, and couched his quivering lance. On a rock whose haughty brow frowns o'er old Conway's foaming flood, robed in the sable guard of woe, with haggard eyes the poet stood. Loose his beard and hoary hair streamed like a meteor in the troubled air, and with a master's hand and prophet's fire, struck deep sorrows of his lyre. Hark how each giant oak and desert cave sighs to the torrent's awful voice beneath. O'er thee, O King, their hundred arms they wave. Revenge on thee in hoarsome murmurs breathe. Vocal no more since Cambria's fatal day. To highborn halls, heart, or soft Llewellyn's lay. Ooh, just, ooh, chills, you know? Um. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's the first two stanzas of the poem. I thought I'd I thought I'd, 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 I'd recite them just so you can get get the vibe, you know? Grey has his bard perched on the cliff face, shouting prophetic curses at the king and his army, mourning the loss of his country. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're at. I feel like I'm on Snowden's shaggy side now. <laughs> uh, there's even a chorus of bards at one point in the poem, and the poem itself has three sections to it. Individuals mentioned include Cadwallo, Urien, and Mordred from Arthurian legend, uh, the legend of Arthur important to Welsh history. Prophecy also comes into play throughout with the bard cursing Edward's line, the Plantagenets, and harking the coming of a Welsh ruler over England. So that is a reference to the House of Tudor as Henry VII, Prince of Wales, who would win the war of the roses and take the throne. The line being the rose of snow twinned with her blushing foe and then later all hail ye genuine kings britannia's issue hail so he references that um combined a red and white rose of tudor house um and yeah so he's just sort of saying ha huh, edward we're gonna have a welsh king on another note i've been watching the white princess so this made me kind of like excited because. The, the Rose of Snow is is Jodie Comer. <laughs> well, not Jodie Comer, but uh, Elizabeth of York. So that's kind of cool. Honestly, White Princess is such a good show. I highly recommend. The poem is a long one, so that's just a very basic overview. But the poem ends rather dramatically. The Bard tells Edward, the, quote, fond and pious man, that he thinks he's won, but tomorrow is a new day, and he can foresee that, quote, the different doom our fates assign. He finally says, quote, to triumph and to die are mine, before, another quote, headlong from the mountain's height, deep in the roaring tide, he plunged to endless night. So death is a better option than submitting to Edward, it seems, as the Bard flings himself into the river. Just before this moment is what we see in Martin's painting. The bard is perched, harp in one hand, two fingers flashing at Eddie in the other, I expect, with the dramatic landscape of the mountains and skyline behind him, whilst in the bottom left an army charges past. Now, looking at the painting, it's clear that Martin was no archaeologist or historian because the castle on the left looks a bit out of place. <laughs> Um, and more like one that Edward would later build in the 1280s but you know, we always like a pinch of artistic license and maybe that is uh, symbolic of um, the roots that Edward would place um, in Wales through the form of those castles so it's artistic license it's a dramatic piece if I haven't already banged on about that (laughs) the epic imagery of Grey's poem I think is accurately portrayed hey look, it's a sick painting, need I say more? This has been such a watered-down retelling of the English conquest of Wales. This was happening all across the country and across history with small modern examples of British integration being like you can't go from northern Wales to southern Wales by train without going through England. Just little things like that. Um, And Wales is still asking for an independence and By no means am I an expert in this, in fact, I'm embarrassingly ignorant on that, matters of independence for Wales or Scotland. But it's just testament to how the legend of the bard is still relevant 800 years later. The Welsh bard became a symbol of opposing oppressive rule for others later in history as well, uh, with the Hungarian poet Janos Ar- um, Arany. I'm really sorry if I've butchered that who wrote the poem The Bards of Wales in 1857. Arani, along with other Hungarian poets, were told to write something to celebrate the visit of the Emperor of Austria. Arani, as a form of resistance to the Austrian political influence over Hungary, wrote his poem about the execution of 500 Welsh bards by Edward I, symbolising the harsh rule of the House of Habsburg. Um. So, the Bards of Wales have influence in various poetic forms and artistry, becoming a symbol of an ancient past of Celtic culture and history, but also freedom of expression and freedom from oppression. And that's the story behind the Bard by John Martin. We've got lots of veins of history and literature fitting into it, and the painting itself just the surface. Um, of all that history and clashing of cultures and individuals and things like that and it's just a great example of pulling back the canvas on something and discovering all this history behind it so yeah exciting stuff um (laughs) again if you want to follow up on anything that i've talked about there is so much information online i really had to sift through stuff this week it was it was getting there was, <laughs> there was getting an overload of information. So yeah, definitely if you want to look up more about um, the Welsh conquest, um, read up more about Eddie Longshanks, as I now like to call him. Yeah, it's all there, all really accessible, and that's that's it. I think um, my co my co-hosts have now fallen asleep, uh, so we won't have any cat content. This uh this time. I hope you stay safe and happy till I next see you. And yeah, that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. I'm Ariel and this has been Pulling Back the Canvas. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.